Let's take our Bibles and go to 2 Samuel 23 this morning. 2 Samuel 23. We're looking at verses 8 through 39 here in just a few moments. I want to encourage you again to join us this evening if you can. Uh, We are planning to continue, really conclude our series looking at the different officers in the church. We're going to be talking about the role of deacons. Um, Again, this is our last time we'll be looking at this. Um, We're working through, we're nearing the end of our change in constitution. Um, That will happen coming up in November. Please be paying attention to the church email regarding those kind of announcements. Um, But there's lots in this office that I think we misunderstand or maybe haven't thought well about or maybe have just assumed a lot about. So I'd encourage you to attend. Um, If you're able, join us for that members meeting. What might God want you to risk for the honor of his king? What might God want you to risk in this life for the honor of his king? One author defines risk this way. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. Today in our culture, we're very much risk averse. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility. It might be small, it might be big. The possibility of injury or loss. That loss could be money. It could be your life. In the service of your king, many Christians have given their lives. Now there's a whole array of risks from those very small ones where you're just going to get some egg on your face. You're not going to get the verbal response that you might hope you would get. Or it could be a big one, the big one, where you're asked to give your life. You have to take those kinds of risks in order to move forward and make an impact, to make a difference in the cause of Christ. At some level, if your life will make a difference, you're going to be asked to make some kind of sacrifice. You can't live for this life and make a difference in the kingdom of God. I want you to think of the many examples that we have in Scripture of godly men and women who hazard their lives for God's glory and the good of his people. There's too many really to count in the time that we have this morning. But let's think of a few. We know well the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're commanded to worship Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot-tall idol. But they refuse to bow to the pressure at the risk of their lives. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, they're not sure of what the future will be. Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Another example, remember the crucial moment for Esther as her people are threatened by the wickedness of a powerful ruler. They're about to be annihilated by a royal decree. The king has been tricked into making this decree. She replies to her uncle Mordecai, 
Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Finally, remember the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer attacking a well-fortified position, a garrison of the Philistines. Saul and his army are sitting back, passive, afraid to attack. But Jonathan daringly attempts great things for God because he expects great things from God. We read in 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What might God want you to risk for the honor of his king? What we see in these examples and we'll see in our text this morning is that risk is right in the service of God's king. This passage even gives us the secret to know how our lives can make a difference. God wants us to be willing to risk our time, our talents, our treasures. So what are you willing to part with in the service of your king? Do you have this mindset? The text will urge us to give our lives in wholehearted service for Christ the King. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, or 2 Samuel rather 23. We'll start reading in verse 8. Now I have practiced saying these names, but I am not sure I will say them all correctly. So you just give me grace and bear with me. Um, I think we will find there's much more value here than we might think at first when we first read these verses. We'll begin reading in verse 8. This is the word of our God. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashebeth, a Tachemanite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai, He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi Where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. 
but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander. But he did not attain to the three. And Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials. This seems to be the mightiest of their warriors. Two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. That word handsome is unusual. It probably rather means huge. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But but Nai went down to him with his staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benai, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem. Shammah, of Herod. Elika, of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezar of Anathoth, Mabunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Mahari, the Natofa of Natofa, Heleb, the son of Baana of Natofa, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Benai of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abialban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliaba the Shaalbanite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shama the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphet the son of Abasha, of Meaka, Eliam the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Peari the Arbite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Benai the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Let's ask for God's help as we consider our text again this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see you in these pages, in these words. Help us to recognize your might, your sovereignty. Help us to learn and apply to our hearts what you would have us learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning tells us that our God delights to use a community of devoted servants who honor his king. Now, as we've worked through this text, this is part of the epilogue. Uh, It's built in a specific way. We can see literary arrangement in this. 
And if you look carefully now, we're in this second to last section focused on David's mighty men. The way that it is structured, it points to the middle as being the most significant parts. Where David praises his God for being the source of his success. These last four chapters are really quite different from the rest of the book. It leads us to ask, why is this here? Specifically, another section about David's mighty men. Why is this here? Why does the Spirit of God intend for us to examine this passage today in 2023? What does this have to do with me? What do we learn from a text like this? Well, this passage affirms what we saw stated In chapters 22 and 23 through verse 7. God is the source of David's success. We'll see that affirmed in this section. We read back in 2 Samuel 3.18. The Lord had promised David saying. By the hand of my servant David. I will save my people Israel. From the hand of the Philistines. And from the hand of all their enemies. This is illustrating that promise. Now this epilogue illustrates how God prospered him and shows David's godly response to his grace. God supplies these faithful servants, this list of men who served their king, who served God's king in order to accomplish his purpose. Now there's many lessons here surrounding this text. We also see in this passage that David's godly leadership encouraged others to commit to his cause. It's really an illustration of what we saw in in, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 23. There is great potential in godly leadership. Here's a humble leader who overwhelmingly served for the benefit of God's people. This morning our text presents for us now four groupings of David's mighty men that we'll look at. First, we see uncommon victories. In verses 8 through 12, we're told in summary fashion of the heroic deeds of men called the three. These are men who gained the greatest recognition in their service of the kingdom, of their king, and God's people. Each of them stood and fought when others chose to flee. But we're not just to see their courage and say, these are really manly men. First, we see Joshua. We're told that he killed 800 men in one conflict. This brief account should not diminish just how amazing this victory would have been. It would have spread throughout the land as this incredible, stunning, surprising victory. The full story would be thrilling to hear. Next, we read of Eleazar. He fought with such intensity and duration that his hand was welded to his sword. And yet, because the Lord strengthened him, he stood and fought when all other soldiers ran. Think of the intensity with which that battle would have occurred. I don't know about you, but I've only once or twice ever come even close to that. Where you're working so hard with a tool where it feels like your hand is kind of just welded around the tool. The closest I've ever come was working on landscaping for a few hours as I was starting over with my landscape shrubbery. It took us a long time to cut that out. And we had this maddox and an axe and worked at those roots hour after hour. And my hand was really, really tired, but really tight when I went to let go. Imagine a man fighting for his life with that intensity. 
for hour upon hour. The last of the three was Shammah. He won a great victory over the Philistines on a day when he was left alone to stand and defend a field. I don't really think the point is about the field, but he's standing alone, unprotected, without any cover, without any support. And we're not to fail to note that the narrator ultimately shows us why these victories occurred. The phrase is repeated twice in both verses 10 and 12. The Lord brought about a great victory. This isn't about the special forces of Israel. This is about the power of God. Matthew Henry concludes, no matter how great the bravery of the instrument, the praise of the achievement must be given to God. These men fought the battles, but God wrought the victory. Let not the strong men then glory in his strength, nor in any of his military operations, but let him that glories glory in the Lord. God's sovereignty in providing victory through these men then encourages us toward God-honoring, God-dependent effort in whatever task God has given us. We don't fight in battles like this, but we're supposed to think of victory and success in these type of terms. We labor diligently with the understanding that only God's power can make our efforts fruitful, whether that's serving in our homes or serving at our workplace or serving in our church. God had promised to save Israel by the hand of David, and he's keeping that promise. God gets the attention and the glory. Notice, we see the same dependence on God's power in Paul's life He's passionately committed to Christ's mission. He writes this, Him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The mission is maturity. As I preach Christ, that's our mission as followers of Christ, making disciples. But notice how he says he does this. Verse 29, for this I toil. That word is agonize. I give full effort And then he uses the word again as a descriptor, struggling or agonizing now with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Who's doing the work according to Paul in Colossians 1, 28 and 29? Well, the answer is Paul is and God is. Our God delights to use a community of faithful and dedicated servants who seek to honor his king. Second, we see uncommon devotion. In verses 13 through 17, we come across the most surprising section of this passage. Maybe you read this this week and you were surprised by this or this is the first time you've read it. In verse 15, David expresses this wish. It's just a wistful remembrance of a better time. Some commentators say this this was dumb for him to say out loud. But how, how could he know that his men were about to take this action? I don't think that's where the narrator's leading us. He simply wishes he could have a drink again from the well near his own home. The narrator's not intending us to draw conclusions as to whether David was right or wrong, wise or foolish. This is the voice of the king saying, I grew up near Bethlehem. That's a special well. Think about it. David's a shepherd. He probably watered his sheep there day after day after day. 
He's thinking of a time in his hometown, a more peaceful time of his life back in Bethlehem. It's like remembering a favorite vacation as a child, wishing you could go back to simpler times. Just one more time. In a period of pressure and stress, happy happy memories of peaceful, better times seem all the more appealing. I think that's all that's happening here. I really don't think we're supposed to focus on what David said. Rather, the focus is on what these men did. David's men overhear this wish. It's just a wish. And they decide to do something extraordinary. Their heroic and daring actions are what the narrator's zooming our attention onto. We read they broke through the Philistine lines. It's talking about violent action. They had to break in and they had to break back through. This is a 12-mile journey one way. Their recklessness, their daring is alarming. It should be. This isn't smart military strategy. But what it's here for, what it does, is demonstrate the loyalty, the love, the devotion they have for God's king. That's the picture. They would do anything for God's king. That's the example. Imagine their anticipation of his response as they're completing that 12-mile journey back maybe with canteens, some leather pouches full of that water that David had wished for. They're nearing the cave, bringing this precious gift with them. David receives it, and I just picture in my mind, David staggered by what they've done. His mouth dropping open. He can't believe they took this action. And he decides to pour it out. Why would he respond this way? What David does confuses and maybe even frustrates us. As a group of us talk through this passage, a few expressed understandable shock at David's response. But read carefully. Note the perspective the narrator provides for us. You see, David rightly considers their gift as too precious For something as small as his mere refreshment. He totally understands that this was meant to honor him. But notice what the narrator says so clearly. He poured it out to the Lord. We might tend to see David's actions as belittling their sacrifice. But he's actually doing the opposite. He's honoring it. He recognizes their incredible devotion. And in this act of pouring it out, he demonstrates his own great love for them. One author helpfully explains what mattered to him was not the water itself, but the extraordinary sacrificial love they had shown to him. For David, the water obtained at such a cost represented the blood of his men. He would not use such devotion for his own physical nourishment, for his own wish fulfillment. A gift this costly in David's mind, this precious, belonged to God alone. He pours it out as a drink offering. 
David gave what these men offered to him back to the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? He's moving it from a horizontal relational plane to the vertical spiritual plane. He's taking a wonderful human act of devotion and making it an act of devotion and worship before God. He's elevating their sacrifice. In this act, it's as if David was saying that such devotion, love, and sacrifice belongs to God alone. One writer states it was one of David's finest moments. He poured it out not because it was trash, but because it was treasure. It belonged to God. Here was a king who was the very opposite of the king that Samuel had feared many years earlier when he warned that a king like the other nations would take and take and take. David turned great human devotion from himself to the Lord. Here's a king very unlike Saul, right? I don't believe the narrator then is intending us to focus primarily on what David did, but on how he viewed these men's daring devotion. His response then should inform our view of their service. This is what service to the king is really all about. It's service to God. This is why these men are remembered. They're willing to sacrifice all for God's king, to risk for God's king. They love him dearly. They're eager to sacrificially meet his nostalgic wish. Notice the text is telling us risk is right in the service of God's king. It's honored. It's remembered. God's calling each of us to risk our lives in some ways, in in particular ways, in individual ways, in wholehearted service for our king. Why did these men do such uncommon feats? At least to some degree, It's because of their fierce, loyal devotion to their king. Would a man do this for a king he did not love, respect, honor? Notice we're not intended to commit ourselves to God's service in isolation. This passage tells us that here even David, the one who had slain his tens of thousands, does not serve God in isolation. He needs a band of brothers. He needs others to help him accomplish God's plans for him. Think of it. Even Jesus surrounds himself with 12 men and three close friends to walk through this life. You then need to invest in building godly relationships and not primarily for your own benefit, but in order to build others up. This is how we accomplish God's purposes in our life. God's provided us that opportunity, that responsibility here in a body of fellow believers. So are you investing your time and energy in developing these kinds of relationships with others, helping them in their commitment to the mission of the king? Are you seeking others who can challenge and encourage you to walk with God? Are you investing in others for their growth? Third, we see uncommon renown. In verses 18 and 19, we're told that Abishai was mighty in battle, wielding his spear against 300 men. We know of this man's great courage. We've heard of his exploits before in our study. He's lieutenant, always ready for action. 
When David's on the run before he's the king and Saul is nearby and vulnerable, he asks David to let him take his life and end their hardship on the run. When Shimei is cursing David and his men as they flee Jerusalem from Absalom, he offers to remove the man's head. When Israel's army is surrounded by both Ammon and Syria, it's Abishai along with Joab who rallied the troops to accomplish another surprising victory when they're outnumbered. He's a brave and impetuous man, but he is zealous in his service to the king. In verses 20 through 23, then we hear of the great deeds of Benai. He defeats two of Moab's mightiest warriors. He kill, kills an angry cornered lion in a pit. It's a unique day, a day when there's snow in Israel. And he disarms and defeats a huge Egyptian with his own spear. This is a man of great courage whom Solomon makes the commander of his armies. Parents, can I encourage you by way of application to consider the importance of training our children with a biblical mindset rather than a worldly one? How will we train our children to take risks for the cause of Christ? Everything in our world says isolate, insulate, security is the number one priority. Is that what scripture is telling us? Consider that some current studies on parenting note that video games and Xbox affect young boys in particular, actually muting their manhood by giving them a false sense of accomplishment and crippling them from taking real risks in life, making them anti-fragile. I'm not making a crusade against video games. I will hear about that at home if I am. There's a place perhaps for them. But I think we're even recognizing from scholars, thoughtful psychologists in the world, that the way we're pursuing life is unhealthy and unhelpful and harmful even. Author Nassim Taleb explains in his book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder, anti-fragility refers to what happens when you face stressors and hardship. Anti-fragility. We don't want to be fragile people. When you add more weights to the bar or you do more reps, you get stronger. But video games, in this instance, in which you can always start over if you're behind or losing and hovering parents, can create and enable fragility, especially in boys. There's an excellent work on this by a man named Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. You see, fine china and plastic cups don't benefit from hardships and pressure. But some things, writes Taleb, like bones and immune systems, benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and result in a person who loves adventure, risk, and uncertainty. The anti-fragile mindset is a heroic mindset. That's Benai, a valiant man and doer of great deeds. You see, our first priority as parents is to bring our children up to passionately pursue the mission of Christ above all things. We embrace risk 
for the sake of the gospel. Because we want to risk? No, because our Christ risked for us. Because every fellow believer recorded in the pages of church history, recorded in the pages of our scriptures, took risk for the sake of Christ, their King. So, as believers, we need to hear and be inspired to risk our lives for the cause of Christ. It's worth it. It's worth it. This comes from learning the stories of godly missionaries and great heroes of the Bible who are willing to forsake all to pursue him. If Christ was willing to take on all the suffering and hardship and risk of entering into this world, what are we to take on in his calling to fulfill his mission? Number four, uncommon servants. Now, we don't have a whole lot of information. We're not meant to have a whole lot of information about the men on this list. We do know something about the first and the last. Asahel was another of Joab's brothers. He was the man who could run very fast. He pursued Abner, Saul's general. He refused to heed that man's warnings and he paid with his life. But as we think of this list, I want to just make some general observations. I want you to think through how old this list is. How old do you think this list is? It's at least around 3,000 years old. You know, I can hardly remember who went into the Hall of Fame last year in any major sport. But I have this list. Now, I might not know everything about these men, but the point is, God does. God felt it important to record this for us to read even this morning. God's paying attention. He pays attention even if no one else knows how his people might be sacrificially serving our king. And that's to encourage us. Nobody might know how you're serving your God. You may be laboring quietly at home, seeking to disciple your children, a family member, an aging or ill loved one. But God knows. He's paying attention. That's what these lists are doing for us. They're telling us our God knows. It encourages us to be faithful no matter what fruit we may or may not be able to see even in this entire lifetime. Consider the story of a rather ordinary man named Tom. Tom was a husband, a father, a church planter, a pastor in Quebec, Canada. His ministry lasted from roughly 1933 to 1992. He pastored during difficult days of persecution in that area of the world. Tom was not a famous pastor. He never pastored a large congregation, even over a hundred people. But he was a faithful pastor. His ministry started small. He rode public transport or his bicycle to follow up with people who requested a copy of the New Testament. He corresponded with interested unbelievers by writing them letters, seeking to win them to Christ. He often faced rejection and scorn. Tom didn't concern himself with whether his location was strategic or the best or with worldly metrics for success. He remained faithful to his commitment to French Canada. He resigned from the pastorate at 52 for the sake of his family and the Lord continued to use him. He got a job as a civil servant and found himself preaching regularly at various churches along with conducting pastoral visits. He was still doing ministry and service. He even led a group where he taught young pastors to work through theological and pastoral issues. 
His greatest act of faithfulness was to his family. He never ignored them for the sake of ministry. When his wife Marge was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he continued to sacrificially serve her. Tom finally followed his wife into eternity just three years after she died. This is the story of Tom Carson. You know his son probably. D.A. Carson. A world famous New Testament scholar and author. He wrote of his father's life and ministry in his book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Tom's fruitful investment in his family has outlived him in a way he could have never anticipated. Would it be enough for you if you never accomplished anything that will be noted in the annals of history, but you persevered in faithfulness and obscurity like Tom Carson? Would it be enough for you if you spent your life in ordinary service for your king, faithfully discipling your children, sharing the gospel with those within your sphere of influence, committing your life and service to your king with a church family? Our God delights. Hear that verb. He delights to use a community of faithful and dedicated servants who seek to honor his king. That's why we have this list. Why the list? Because God remembers. He takes careful note of the faithful, committed service of his people. Your God is paying attention to the way that you serve right now. Our text encourages us that God wants to use you in faithful, committed service to his king. Now, I want us to return one final time to the list. I'm sure it didn't escape your notice as we read who the last name on the list is. Do you think that's an accident or a coincidence? Why do you think the divinely inspired editor arranged this material with Uriah's name as last on the list? It demonstrates with utmost clarity that the best of men are men at best. It affirms the central theme of the epilogue, God alone. It doesn't matter how many people these mighty warriors killed. God alone is worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our devotion. The last name on the list tells us we need a better king. The greatest of Israel's kings, a truly godly man, still had this kind of sin within his heart. In a moment when he'd taken his eyes off his God, he plunged into the depravity of his fallen nature and even murdered one of his mighty men. His most faithfully devoted servants. God uses our failures even to point us back to himself. The apostle Paul never forgot his own background what God had saved him from. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I saw other Christians put to death. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is what Jesus meant when he said, he who's forgiven little loves little. 
One pastor aptly summarizes here, we see a king, David, who betrayed one of his own men, who then points us to the king who was betrayed by his own men. Around the table at that last supper, he told them they would all run and forsake him. But he chose the cross for their sake in spite of that betrayal. This, this is our king. As we've seen over and over in our study, the better king is Jesus. He, he alone will never leave you. He'll never fail you. He alone is worthy of your love, of your devotion like this, of your extravagant sacrifices. He always serves for your benefit. He gives his life for you. A.W. Pink writes, when the books are opened before an assembled universe and the fidelity and courage of God's servants is proclaimed, it will be principally for the glory of their captain whom they served and whose fame they sought to spread and by whose spirit they were energized and enabled. Whatever crowns his servants and saints receive from God, they will be laid at the feet of the lamb who alone is worthy. How could we not give ourselves in faithful, committed, risk-taking service for this king. Father in heaven, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to be, be made sin for us, to bear our betrayals, even in our unfaithfulness and betrayal day by day, even perhaps this past week, in the way that we've spoken, in the way that we've ignored you, in the way that we've lived and thought, the sins that we've pursued, you're faithful to us still. Thank you for providing to us this better king. Thank you for using David's life as great as it was to continue to point us back to his greater son. Father, we need more of you. If we would value you for the king that you are, there's no risk we'd be unwilling to make. Father, help us to love you and cherish you and treasure you and be willing to give our lives for in your service. Thank you for the many, many ways our church family does serve. I pray that we would be encouraged that you take note of these I pray that each of us would recognize we should be expressing gratitude to one another when we see each other serving Christ. Lord, thank you for this text, as unusual as it might be, as seemingly unattractive as it might be. For here again, you point us to our God. In Jesus' name, amen.